Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Almighty God, your name is excellent in all the earth, and your glory is above the heavens. And you have done this in such a way as to make it clear that you reign sovereign over all, and that no one says to you, stop, or this far and no farther. You ordain the times and seasons and exact lifespans of every creature under heaven, and you ordain strength in the mouth of babes and nursing infants. What you say is strong is actually strong, and what we think is strong is not always so. So we praise you that you have done this and are doing this in order to silence every enemy and avenger. We praise you that you are doing this in order that every mouth may be stopped, every arrogant thought put to shame, every attempt at taking human credit for any of it laughed to scorn. And so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we worship you now, our Father, in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. And amen. 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 This week and next week, we will be using the Nicene Creed when we confess our faith together, when we get to that part of the service. The reason for this is that the Nicene Creed is one of our church's confessional statements, and the elders decided last year that we wanted to occasionally review uh, this one along with the definition of Chalcedon. And we chose uh, this Sunday, Ascension Sunday, and next Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, to use the Nicene Creed. You'll see that the Nicene Creed is very similar to the Apostles' Creed, which is the one that we use most weeks, which makes it a little bit tricky. Unless you've previously memorized the Nicene Creed, you'll uh, probably want to follow along fairly closely in the bulletin this week and next. A number of the phrases and lines are the same as the Apostles' Creed, and then a number of the phrases and lines aren't. So just when you think you know what's next, there's something different. The key places that are different from the Apostles' Creed are expansions on who Jesus and the Holy Spirit are. The Nicene Creed makes it explicit that Jesus is fully God and of one substance with the Father. And the Holy Spirit is also fully God since he proceeds from the Father and the Son, is worshipped and glorified with them. And the Creed insists that these three persons are the one true and eternal God. Now, this reality is not some kind of obscure theological point. It's not merely important to confess the doctrine of the Trinity because the Bible teaches it, although that is true. The doctrine of the Trinity is also enormously important because it is another way of explaining the doctrine of our salvation. If Jesus is not fully God, then he's not capable of actually bearing the full weight of God's wrath against our sin. 
Not only that, if Jesus is not fully God, he cannot fully reconcile us to God. How do you know that you are in fellowship with God? How can you be sure? Part of the answer is that God himself came for you in the person of his son. If you know the son, then you know the father. And the same point goes for the spirit. The spirit that fills every true believer is the spirit of the father and the son. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the living God, such that the body of every believer truly has become the temple of the living God. God lives in you by his spirit. So this is the glory of the Trinity, the glory of our salvation, and it was faithful and courageous Christians like Athanasius and St. Nicholas who stood for these truths when the whole world seemed to be against them. So when we proclaim the Nicene Creed this week and next, say it like you mean it. Say it and stand against the world, the flesh and the devil. Say it and believe it with all your heart. And as we prepare to confess our sins this morning, please turn to, to thee, O Lord, who dwellest in the height on page 161. Amen. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Psalm 25 says, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Father, we confess that we often have had such a small view of your glory and your greatness. We confess that you are God, that you are all goodness and all glory, but then we carry on as though you are not the greatest, the best, as though our favorite sports or hobbies or pastimes or friendships are about as good as it gets. Father, we want to truly enjoy your good gifts and at the same time, we want to enjoy them as paths to enjoying you more and more. So teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us your wisdom. Forgive us for our apathy and learning more about you. Forgive us for our arrogance and thinking we've come a lot further than we really have. And forgive us for our despair and denying how far you have actually brought us. Teach us to remember your tender mercies and loving kindness, which are from of old. Give us grace to grow up into the mind of Christ. Do not remember the sins of our youth, nor our transgressions. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Psalm 106 says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. You have confessed your sins, and your God is mighty to save. So as a minister of this glorious gospel in Jesus, it's my privilege to declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. The text this morning is Psalm 103. These are the words of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as the flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, and that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Our Father and God, we do bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We come before you now to hear your word. I pray that your spirit would be present in our midst, ensuring that we do in fact hear it. And we pray in Jesus' name, and amen. This is a psalm of great consolation for sinners. This is a psalm of great encouragement for people who have iniquity, sin, evil, corruption, or disease somewhere within their soul, and that would include everyone here. This is an encouraging psalm for everyone who hears it with faith, and you cannot hear it with faith unless Christ is involved in the hearing. So we have a plain statement here of what our condition is apart from the grace of God, coupled with a clear testimony of the giving of that grace regardless of what we merit or deserve. So we have a clear statement of the grace of God, and it's connected to a clear testimony of how God gives that grace despite the fact that we don't deserve him giving that grace. If we deserve the grace, it wouldn't be grace. If we deserve the mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. Now, one of the worst things a man can be is an ingrate, and in this psalm, we are catechized in the glorious discipline of not forgetting his benefits. It's, it's terrible, especially terrible for sinners, especially terrible for forgiven sinners to be ungrateful, to be ingrates. And in here, we are reminded, we are catechized, we are disciplined in what it means to remember God's forgiveness, to remember how, how kind God has been to us. So the psalm begins with a blessing for God, and it is a blessing that comes from us to him. It's a blessing that comes with all, the, uh, with all our heart. Everything that the psalmist blesses God with all his heart, if we echo his words, if we sing along with understanding, we are blessing the Lord with all our hearts. The blessing accompanies the grace of not forgetting his benefits. That's in the second verse. He is the God who forgives iniquities, 
He is the God who heals diseases. He forgives iniquity and he heals diseases. Verse 3. He redeems us from destruction and he crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He crowns us with loving kindness. He crowns us with loving kindness. He crowns us with tender mercies. Verse 4. It goes on to say, he fills our mouths with good things, which would include these blessings of God, right? The fact that we are able to bless God in the words of Psalm 103, that's a good thing, and it's in our mouth. God is the one who put that psalm in our mouth. And he, re he renews our youth like the eagles, verse 5. The Lord is the one who delivers justice and judgment for all the oppressed, verse 6. He revealed his way of doing things to Moses. He revealed, this is my way, this is what I'm like, this is my character. He revealed all of that to Moses, and he revealed it to the children of Israel. Verse 7, he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, and he is abundant in mercy. That is what God is like. Verse 8, his anger is real but he will not always chide, verse nine. It might seem when we're first getting our feet under us, when we're first learning what it is like to be Christians, what it, we're first getting our minds around what it means to be a disciple of Christ, it might seem like you're stumbling all the time, learning things, correcting things, and it's like God's always saying, no, not that, no, not, not that, not that, not that. But he's not always going to be like that. It's not, he, he will not always chide. You have to go back to the previous verse to see what his heart is in the chiding. He chides, but he's not always going to chide, and we see where it's coming from in verse 8. He's gracious, slow to anger. Uh, abundant in mercy and he's merciful. So his treatment of us has not been commensurate with what we actually deserve. His treatment has not been commensurate with what we actually deserve. Verse 10, his mercy toward us is as high as heaven is above the earth. How much, how deep is God's mercy? Well, how, how high is heaven above, how high is heaven above your head? That's how deep God's mercy is to you. Verse 11, how far, how far has he removed our transgressions from us? As far as east is from the west, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your iniquities are away from you. Your sins, your foibles, your faults, the things you've done, the things that, are, that you're deeply ashamed of, how far away are they from you? As far as the east is from the west. The Lord pities those who fear him in the same way that an earthly father pities his children. Verse 13, he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Verse 14, men dry up the way that the grass in the field dries up when a scorching wind passes over it. We see that in verses 15 and 16. If there's a, particularly in the Middle East where this was written, if a scorching wind goes over a meadow, the grass just withers. But the mercy of the Lord is forever. The grass is not forever. The grass withers, but the mercy of the Lord is forever, extending from one generation to another, to those who keep covenant, verses 17 and 18. But also realize that it says God's mercy endures forever to those who keep covenant. Don't think, oh, that's for the perfect people. God's mercy is for the perfect people. No, remember that it's mercy that he's showing. All right, keeping covenant does not mean sinless perfection. Keeping covenant is not about sinless perfection because remember, it's mercy that is being shown. 
So God, what do we do when we keep covenant? When we keep covenant, we realize that the covenant is a covenant that contains within it provision for our sin. It, it contains the blood of Christ. This is the cup of the new covenant that we're going to partake of at the end of the service. And that is blood that's shed for sin. So God's mercy is poured out on people who need mercy. So keeping covenant is not a matter of being a good little scrubbed up Christian. It's not a matter of uh, coloring inside the lines. It's not a matter of being your idea of perfect. It is resorting to the terms of the covenant for cleansing when you need it in all honesty. Those who keep covenant are those who turn to Christ. Those who keep covenant are those who resort to Christ when they need Christ, which is to say all the time. That's, that's what keeping covenant means, looking to Christ. There'll be more about that a, a little bit later. God's throne is in heaven. He rules over everything. God's throne is in heaven. He rules over everything. Verse 19, remember that the highest heaven is how deep God's mercy is to us. So on top of that towering mercy is God's throne. God's throne is at the top. You are underneath the pile. It's all mercy and God's throne is on the top of that mercy. The psalmist then calls upon the angels to do the same thing that he's been doing, which is to bless the Lord. Verse 20. He then calls upon God's hosts, his heavenly armies, to do the same thing. Bless the Lord, he says, all you hosts, verse 21. And then he calls upon every work of God in every place to join in the chorus and to bless the Lord together with him. And when you call upon all the works of God to bless the Lord, you're asking every atom in the planet Jupiter to bless the Lord. You're asking every pebble on the dark side of the moon to bless the Lord. You're asking for every drop of water in the Pacific Ocean to bless the Lord. All the works of God are to, are to gather together in a chorus and bless the Lord together with the psalmist, verse 22. So let's start with that uh, odd expression, bless the Lord, O my soul. We should know that by definition, the only one capable of blessing anyone really is God. Blessing has to flow from God to us. That's the way it has to go, right? God is the ultimate source. God is the ultimate source of every blessing that's enjoyed by any creature. If you are under a blessing, the blessing ultimately comes from God. This would be blessing in the strict sense. The only possible blessing taken, taken in the strict sense has to come to us God, from, from God. But scripture uses the term blessing as here in a reverse sense as we find it in this psalm. Like a kid who's given a dollar by his father so that he can go to the dollar store to buy his father a birthday present, so we also return the blessings that God has given us back to him, and this psalm is saturated with this wonderful exercise. Now, we have to realize that the blessing that we render to God when we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, everything that's in my heart, bless the Lord, gather everybody up and let's bless the Lord together, we have to realize that we're only giving back to him what he gave to us in the first place. We're only rendering back to him what he's already bestowed upon us. But the Bible does call that blessing the Lord. We bless God. We are summoned to, to bless God. We are invited to bless God. We are commanded to bless God. And we do this knowing that we are not autonomous um, we are not an autonomous font of any kind of blessing at all. All of our blessing is derivative. 
The only light that we can shine toward God is light that we're reflecting from God. He is the sun, we are the moon. We can reflect light, we can reflect light gen genuinely, but we must understand that we're not autonomous. We don't originate any of it. But then, at the same time, we have to realize that we're, we're summoned, we're called to bless the Lord. The invitation is given repeatedly, bless the Lord of my soul. Everybody around me, join in with me. We need, we need to bless the Lord. So the psalmist blesses the Lord twice in the first verse and does it again, with, and, and he does that with everything he's got, verse 1. That is insufficient, so he blesses him again in the second verse, refusing to forget God's benefits to him, refusing to forget the benefits that God has poured out upon him. That's the second verse. That, this is the keynote of this psalm. Bless the Lord. Bless him with everything you've got. Bless him in such a way that there's nothing left over. That's the keynote of this psalm, and he returns to it at the conclusion of the psalm. He tells the angels to bless the Lord, verse 20. He tells the starry host to bless the Lord, verse 21. And he tells the entire created order to bless the Lord. Everything that exists, if it's material, if it's, if it's made, if it's created, if God did it, <clears throat> then you must bless the Lord, verse 22. Psalm 103 is a glorious sandwich, and creatures blessing the Lord are the two pieces of bread on either side. All right, that's the two, bless the Lord on this side, bless the Lord on this side. The meat in the middle is made up of all the countless reasons why we should bless the Lord. He, re he really does fill our mouths with good things. And this sandwich is a glorious way to approach it. We have to understand that praising the Lord has content. Praising the Lord has content. This is a pattern that you see in the Psalms. Praise the Lord, that's one piece of bread. Then he did this, he did that, he did the, he destroyed Og, king of Bashan, he delivered us from Egypt. He did, that's the bologna, that's the salami, that's the cheese. You have all these things that God did. And then the Psalm concludes with another piece of bread piece of bread. Praise the Lord. But what many modern evangelicals want is a bread sandwich, right? Praise the Lord, 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 and then praise the Lord. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. And let's, let's sing it again. That's a bread sandwich. We, you don't, we need to be done with the bread sandwiches. We need to, at the same time, we have to know what we're doing. It's not just, yeah, I know those doctrinal uh, things are true, that God delivered his people repeatedly. That's true. You don't want just meat. You want to praise the Lord. This is what we're about. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. This is, this is what we're intending to do. We're going to make a sandwich. And then you make, uh, you, Christians really need to learn how to make a uh, Dagwood, you know, big stacked up, stacked up sandwich, a long psalm. Praise the Lord. And what has he done for me? What has he done for my wife? What has he done for my children? What has he done for my, my people? What has he done for my extended family? What has he done for our church? He's done this and he's, what has he done for my country? What has he done? Uh, think about it and, and state the things that he has done. That's how the Psalms work. Praise the Lord and then content. It's a content rich thing. And then you conclude with bless the Lord, O my soul. So we have, we have a, uh, a glory sandwich, a, a bless the Lord sandwich. Now, I want us to consider what we were before and what we are after. What does this Psalm say about the before and after um, summary. What does the before and after picture look like here? According to this psalm, what condition were we in? 
According to this psalm, what condition were we in before the Lord's kindness was poured out over the tops of our heads? To begin with, verse 3, we were iniquitous. For also, verse 3, we were diseased. We were iniquitous and we were diseased. We were destined for the pit. We were careening there. We were headstrong and running headlong toward the pit, verse 4. Although he is slow to anger, we deserve that anger nonetheless, verses 8 and 9. We were most undeserving, verse 10. We were most undeserving. And even in the midst of our rebellions, we were rebellious dust. In the midst of our high-handed, insolent, and arrogant rebellions, we were rebellious dust, verse 14. At the peak of our ungrateful strength, we were nothing but an August dust devil, the kind that lasts for 10 minutes. Boy, look at that furious dust devil going across the field. I bet he's going to do a lot of damage. No, he thinks he is. If you gave, if you gave a, uh, a storyline to that dust devil, he would think a lot, of his, a lot of himself, a lot of his power. But he's going to be gone. He's just, it's just dust. It's just dust. And for God, from God's perspective, an F5 tornado is a dust devil. Everything, it's just, it's all a bunch of nothing. And we spin around saying, we're, we're going to defy God. We don't need him. We can, do our, we can do our own thing. We can go our own way. No, we are merely dust. So that was our, that was our before condition. That's the way it was for us before. So what has God done for such miserable creatures? What has God done for such miserable creatures? He has transformed us first into worshipers. Verse 1 and verse 22. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and then we're summoning others to worship together with us. We were created for worship. As we are worshiping God, we are, we are fulfilling the role that God has made us for. We are fundamentally not homo sapiens, not wise man, but homo adorans, worshiping man. We are created for worship. We are created to fellowship with God. We are created to reflect him and to praise him. That's what we are for. Why are you here to worship God? Why are you here to bless the Lord? Why are you here? What, what, do, you, what do you exist for? What's your reason for existence? We live in a self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic era. And if, I, if you walk up to the average person on the street and say, what are you for? Well, I've, what I want to do is I want to figure out my life and my career path and what are my hopes and dreams and aspirations. And I want to dig down deep and find the real me. And then I want to express the real me. Whatever, <laughs> why would any of us want to express the real us? Are you, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Put a little television set above everybody's head, everybody's head, and all, is, all it does all day long is portray to any observer the real you. What's going on in your head? What's going on in your heart? And all of you would not, all of us, everybody here would be hiding in the basement, not interacting with anybody. If we had a television screen that revealed the real us, no. No, we, we are a piece of work. We need something. We need, I remember years ago, uh, Barry McGuire uh, at the time, uh, uh, 
he was a, uh, came here and did a concert, contemporary Christian music concert, and he said in one of the intros to the song, he said, you know, people accuse me of being brainwashed. He says, well, that's right. They needed a little scrub, you know. <laughs> yeah, my brains did need to be washed. My, bra- my thoughts were dirty all the time. What do we need, what do we need to do? We need to be transformed into worshipers, and it's got to be, that's what we're for. We're not here to worship ourselves. We're not here to glorify ourselves. We're not here to bless ourselves. We only are going to be filled with good things if we are, if our mirrors are pointed at the thing that we're built to to reflect. We are created in the image of God. We are not created to be images of one another. We are not created to be images of ourselves. You can't point a mirror at the mirror. You can't have a mirror reflect itself. We are created to reflect God. And when we are pointed to him, when we are worshiping him, things come back into place. Things fall into place. Things are put back right. So I'm not saying that we're so sinful and so messed up that not even God can do anything about us. That's not the point. There's no, in that scenario, there's no salvation. What I'm saying is salvation is found outside yourself. You must look away. You must look to Christ. You must look away. And when you look away, when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is proclaimed, and you first learn to look away, what God does is he puts things right. As long as you're hovering over it, looking at yourself, uh, checking your heart every 10 minutes to see how you're doing, I can tell you how you're doing. You're not doing very well because you're, you're, pointing, you're pointing yourself in the wrong direction. You need to be pointed at Christ. The only way to reflect Christ is to be looking to him. The only way to reflect God's nature and character and attributes is to be looking to him. So God has transformed us into worshipers. He loads us with benefits, it says in verse two. Those previously mentioned iniquities are forgiven, verse three. So we were iniquitous, but God has forgiven our iniquities. And those previously mentioned diseases, liquid with decay, have been completely healed. All those diseases, all that leprosy, all that infection, all that gangrenous self-absorption, all of it is healed. That's what God has done. Verse 3, he pulled us back from the lip of the abyss. Verse 4, having hauled us wretches away from the bottomless pit, he takes us off to a coronation. That's, now this is where things get weird. You can understand pity being extended to someone, blind, yelling, yelling insolence and blasphemies against God, yelling and tapping his cane, walking toward the lip of the bottomless pit. You can understand mercy pulling him away. You can understand mercy reaching out and say, no, you don't want to, you don't want to take that next step. You can understand pity doing that. But then for God to take us by the shoulder, turn us away, and then take us off to a coronation where he crowns us with kindness. He crowns us with mercy. Notice that in verse 4. He crowns us with hesed is the Hebrew word. He crowns us with tender mercies. He puts that on your head. You are crowned a king. You are crowned a queen. You who just weeks before, hours before, were headed off to the outer darkness. That's That's the intervention. God intervenes. He doesn't just intervene to... uh, to haul you away from the bottomless pit so he can take you up to heaven, stick you in a corner, and remind you every 10 minutes what worthless scum you are. 
That's not what he is about. That's not what salvation is about. We understand the depth of total depravity. The Bible teaches that we understand that we really are a mess. We understand that apart from Christ, we are a mess. But those who want to say, and now that I'm saved, I want to remain a mess, or I want to remind myself of what a mess I am. I don't want to, rejo I don't want to re rejoice in what God has done. I want, to, I want to render myself incapable of saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. I want to forget all of his benefits. That doesn't make, that doesn't add up. Yes, we should understand how sinful we are. We should understand the law. We should understand our iniquity so that we could understand the, the magnitude of the, our deliverance from the condemnation of the law for the position we were in. If you say, I can only understand my depravity, I can only understand my iniquity if I remain submerged in it, that, that is to uh, set yourself up in rebellion against all gospel logic. So God fills up our mouth with everything delicious, including things like this psalm. Verse 5, he shows us the path to walk. He shows us the path to walk. He, he showed Israel. He showed the children of Israel, this is the way I want you to go. Verse 7, he turns his just and holy anger away. Verse, verses 9 and 10. This is what the word propitiation means. Propitiation means to avert the wrath of God. God's wrath, God's anger, God's just and holy anger was coming at us, and we deserved every bit of it. The wrath of God is God's fist coming at a rebellious humanity. Propitiation is Jesus intervening, Jesus taking the blow, so that you could take the blow in him. And God's wrath is fulfilled. That means, because the, the concept in our legal system of double jeopardy, of not, you can't be tried for the same crime twice. Double jeopardy is a biblical, it's a biblical concept. If, if the sentence has been executed, if the sentence has been delivered, if God's hatred of your sin has been poured out on Christ, there's, that is never going to come up again. That's why it's as far as the east is from the west. So, so uh, God not only takes our transgressions far away, he takes them farther away from us than the east is from the west. This is simply a poetic way of saying he takes them an infinite distance. There is no place, you're, you're not be able to uh, travel around the world and find yourself standing on the spot where um, it, it changes from one to the other. If you go this direction, you're always, you're always gonna be going east. If you're going that direction, you're always gonna be going west. It doesn't matter how many times you go around the world. You're just gonna be going west all the time or going east all the time. So as far as the east is from the west, that's how far away your sins are from you. If you wanna find your sins again, you're going to have to travel the entire circumference of the circle looking for whatever corner he put them in. But it's a circle. There is no corner. You can't find them again. Your sins are not discoverable again. If your sins have been forgiven by God, they're done. They're gone. Removed. And, and there's no possible way for any human explorer to find them. If you are in Christ, your sins are dealt with. Your sins are forgiven. So there is no corner. 
There is no corner. You can't find your sins again. He knows our frame. He knows what it's like to be as lame and as pitiful as we are. Verse 13, and he acts upon that understanding by loading us up with his mercy. And he pours it out in such a way as to bury our grandchildren in that mercy. Verse 17, God is kind to you. He's kind to your children and he's kind to your grandchildren. God pours out abundant generational mercy. This is what it means to be in covenant. This is God's covenant kindness. This is what it means to be crowned with hesed, to be crowned with tender mercies. So this is what God does. This, we're, this psalm is not um, whitewashing our sin in any way. This psalm doesn't pretend that we're better than we are. Many people want to say, well, you're okay. You're okay because your sin wasn't that bad. And other people want to say, well, you're really bad and there's no hope for you. In, in the, the gospel logic, the logic of scripture, we see the depth of sin so that we, so that we can see the height of mercy. We, we are invited to see the depth of our sin so that we will magnify the mercy and grace of God because he has dealt with all of that. So if God's mercy, is, God's mercy ascends, towers above us as high as the heavens are above our heads, that's how high God's mercy towers over you. It doesn't matter how deep your sin went because God's mercy is higher than that. Your mercy, your, your, your sin can only go so deep, right? The, the globe is only finite, uh, finite size. If, you're, if your sin plums the, you know, subterranean, if it's, if it's way down there, if your iniquity is really bad, let's, let's say you were a murderer. Let's say you were a self-righteous Pharisee. Let's say you were insolent. Let's say that you were arrogant. Let's say that you were full of yourself. You hated, and, and you hated those Christians who loved Jesus. And God says, I'm going to pick you to write most of the New Testament. That's, that's what you're qualified for. I'm going to pick you to write the book of Romans and to write 1 Corinthians and write 2 Corinthians. And I'm going to pick you to write Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. What's more, I think we still need 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. I think we need some Thessalonians out of you. I think we need a Titus. Go. All right. And, and, and when, when did uh, the Apostle Paul, when did Saul of Tarsus go forward at the revival meeting? When, when did he decide that he wanted to follow Jesus? Did he set off for Damascus humming to himself, I have decided to follow Jesus? I have decided to follow Jesus? No, it says that he, he left for Damascus. He was breathing threats and murder. The Apostle Paul was breathing threats and murder, and God says, that looks like fine Christian potential right there. <laughs> that's, my kind, that's my kind of sinner. Because... That's representative of the kind of sinner all of us were. Do you see, do you see that? The, the, look, at there are hundreds of people here. Do we have sexual sin represented here? You bet we do. Do we have envy represented here? You bet we do. Do we have unhealthy, ungodly competition? You bet we do. Do we have pride and arrogance in families that causes disruptions? You bet we do. Do we have people here who have messed it? Do we have adulteries represented here? You bet we do. Right? All of that. Now, in Christ, God doesn't care. 
Now, God purchased his right to not care and still remain just by having his son die on the cross. If God just said, if God just looked down at this sinful world and said, I don't care, you know, I don't, I don't care, he would, he would be unholy. God does not, the Bible tells us that God does not justify the guilty. God does not say, say of the guilty, oh, you, di you didn't really do it, or I'm, I'm going to wink at it. God does not wink at disobedience unless he's got a basis for winking at that disobedience, unless he has a basis for overlooking transgression. And that basis is the answer, the key to understanding how this psalm can be righteous. How does God do this? The kindness of God is plain and obvious throughout all of Scripture. The kindness of God is plain and obvious throughout all Scripture, but it all comes to a crescendo in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kindness of God is evident from the first pages of Genesis. Adam and Eve, screwed, they were given a perfect world, given a perfect marriage, given a perfect garden, given a perfect opportunity, given a perfect everything, and God said, just don't eat that one fruit, and they messed it up. The one place they were told not to go, they went. The one thing they were told not to do, they did. And then a page or two later, Genesis 3.15, God promises a Messiah. God promises that the seed of the woman is going to come and is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. God promises deliverance in the immediate aftermath of our first catastrophic rebellion. Now that kindness is evident all the way through the Old Testament. God's kindness, God's forbearance, God's, uh, he remembers our frame, he understands he's not too severe with us. He's, we sometimes think he's too severe. We sometimes, well, the flood, that was kind of severe. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, that was kind of severe. No, even those great judgments were not nearly as se severe as what we merited, what we deserved. So God's mercy is, ex is extensive throughout the Old Testament. But it all comes to a crescendo. It all comes to the great climax in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And to use the shorthand form, we are crowned with hesed because he was crowned with thorns. We are crowned with love and kindness because he was crowned with thorns. In order to make new men out of the wreckage of the old, God established a new humanity through a new and sinless Adam. And he invites all men to come to him on that basis. All men, all men are in Adam. Everyone here is descend, descended from Adam. Everyone here is covenantally in Adam. Everyone here is by nature an object of wrath because of our participation in Adam. He is the root and we are part of the tree. We are twigs and leaves and fruit out on the edge of the branches. Adam is the root. Everyone here is part of that Adamic race by nature. What God did is he planted a new humanity in the midst of that old humanity. 2,000 years ago, God caused, God brought about the establishment of another Adam, a new Adam. That Adam is the, is the, uh, uh, the head of the new human race. And you are part of that new Eve. You are part of the bride of Christ. Christ is the new Adam, and every person who has faith in Christ is incorporated by, by the instrumentality of that faith into the bride. You are brought by faith into the bride. So if your desire 
is to have as your possession, as your possession, you want to know that that before and after picture that I sketched earlier, you want that to be descriptive of you. You want, yeah, the, the, I've got the before. Everybody's got the before, all right? That's, that's just what you got from Adam. But if you want the after, you want God's to fill your mouth with good things. You want your mouth to be full of the blessing of the Lord. You want to be crowned with kindness. You want to be crowned with the goodness of God. You want the after. You don't want just the before, you want the after. If you want the full possession of the before and the after, what do you do? What, what are we called to do? The answer is very straightforward. The answer is that you look to Christ. What do you do? What, are, what is a sinner to do? A sinner must look to Christ. Look to Christ. Now I want to explain that. You look to Christ in the womb. Christ in his mother's arms, Christ in the manger, Christ at school, Christ at work, Christ at the Jordan being baptized, Christ at Matthew's banquet, Christ casting out demons, Christ touching the lepers, Christ rebuking Pharisees, Christ handing the sop to Judas, Christ praying in the garden, Christ being arrested, Christ restoring the ear of Malchus, Christ flogged, Christ with the thorns jammed on his head, Christ nailed to the wood, Christ speared, Christ anointed and wrapped, Christ buried, Christ risen, Christ embraced by an overjoyed Magdalene, Christ in the upper room with his astonished disciples, and Christ ascended into heaven. Look to him and you will be saved. Look anywhere else and you're lost forever. Look to him and you are saved. Look away, look to yourself, look in the mirror, look, under the, look anywhere else and you're lost. Look anywhere else and you're damned. Look to him and you're saved. But why is this? Why is this? When you look to Christ, you are looking where the Father is looking. When you look to Christ, you are looking to Christ. So what happens is you look to Christ you close with Christ, you look to Christ in order that you might come to him, and when you come to him, you are included in him. You look to Christ, you close with Christ, and you are ushered into Christ. And when you come, when you look to Christ, come to Christ, and are ushered into Christ, what's happening is this. The Father is saying to you, come here, let's have a look at you. Now here's the problem. If the Father says, the Holy Father, the infinite creator, the one in whom there is, no, there is no iniquity in the Father. If the Father says, come here, let's have a look at you, and you try to come before him, to stand before him in your own name, to stand before him in your own righteousness, what's going to happen? I want you to, just a thought experiment, and this is, every illustration is totally inadequate, but I want you to think of a sunny day, a magnifying glass, a 10-year-old boy, and an ant on the sidewalk. All right. A sunny day, magnifying glass, 10-year-old boy, and an ant on the sidewalk. That's you before God in your own name. That's you before God in your own righteousness. God, accept me for all my good deeds. God, accept me. I sang in the choir. God, accept me. I gave money to this philanthropic. I, I, I donated this. I, my neighbors thought well of me. My neighbors were willing to ask me to watch their house when they went on vacation. They didn't think I was going to burn it down. I was a good person. Lord, Lord. 
We did this. Lord, Lord, we did that. Lord, Lord, we did the other thing. And what does the Lord say to all these people who attempted to present themselves to him in their own name? He says, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. If you say, look at me, Lord, you're saying, look at me in my own name, in my own righteousness, in my own goodness, in my own self-sufficiency. Look at me, look at me, look at me. If a Holy Father were to look at you on that basis in judgment, nothing would happen other than you being consumed. That's what would happen. Annihilation, destruction, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth forever and ever. And everyone here is either going to be in the presence of God forever and ever or excluded from the presence of God forever and ever. There is no, there is no third option. You're either becoming more like Jesus Christ, you're on your way there, or you're headed the other place headed the other way. And if you're headed the other way, you need to be summoned, you need to be stopped before you go over the edge of the abyss so that you might come back and be there in time for your coronation, so that you could be crowned with kindness and goodness. So when the Father invites you, he's, when the Father says, come here, let's have a look at you, you are, and you come to him through Christ, you come into Christ, you look to Christ, you close with Christ, you're, you're ushered into Christ by means of the, the Holy Spirit who baptizes you into Christ. The Father looks at you in Christ and he is overjoyed. He is not ashamed of his work. He's not ashamed of what he's doing. He's not ashamed of the kindness that he's shown to you. He knows what he's up to. He knows what he's doing. He's saving the world. And he's saving the world with the wreckage of the previous world. He's going to build a glorious cathedral out of the wreckage of the stones from the first one, the one that we caused to be toppled. So you look to Christ, and you're looking to Christ, you're looking to the one that the Father is looking at. The Father looks to Christ, and what, when, whenever the Father looks to Christ, what does the Father say? He says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. This is my Son. If I, if I hear the benediction of the Father, this is my beloved Son, if I hear him saying that, I want to be standing wherever that is. Wherever that is. If, if God is saying, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased, I want to be in him, presenting myself to him on that basis. That's what it means to end your prayers in Jesus' name, amen. That's what you're saying. You're saying, God, I can't talk to you all by myself. I'm just the ant on the sidewalk. I can't come to you. I have nothing, uh, nothing in my hands I bring, as the hymn says, simply to thy cross I cling. I have nothing, I have no argument. I have no plea other than the fact that Christ is my Savior. And that's how God fills your mouth with good things. That's how it works. And when it happens, you bless the Lord. And you, and you want everyone around to bless the Lord together with you. You invite them all to join with you and you bless the Lord. Our Father and God, we thank you, we praise you. We, um, we, we ask that you would teach us by your spirit what these things mean. I pray that we would not just know them in our heads, but that we would experience them in our heart. Father, if there's any here this morning who are not yet converted to you, who are not yet transformed by your spirit, I pray that your spirit would knock them over, overwhelm them, bring them in. Father, I pray that anybody here who's running away from you, I pray that you drag them back. 
Father, I pray you would give them a glimpse of what it is to be crowned with loving kindness. This last Thursday was Ascension Day, the 40th day after Easter, the day on which Jesus ascended into heaven. And the Christian church is frequently marked this Sunday to proclaim the ascension of Jesus as a central and glorious aspect of our salvation. Not only did Jesus die for our sins, not only did he rise again from the grave, but he then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sat down, having been given all authority, power, and dominion. He sat down like no high priest ever could. He sat down as the mediator of the great and new covenant, offering in his own body a pure sacrifice that never needs to be repeated again. A true man is in God's presence now for us. The ascension of Jesus is the down payment and guarantee of our hope. Jesus was raised and he ascended to God's presence in a glorified human body. But never forget, it's a human body just like yours and mine. So hear this good news this morning. Your salvation is no longer merely a promise. It has become reality. The promises of God have become flesh in Jesus Christ, and the promises of God have been entirely fulfilled in him. God has set his son, the king, on his holy hill of Zion, and he has given him the nations for his inheritance, the ends of the earth for his possession. China belongs to Jesus. Russia belongs to Jesus. Saudi Arabia belongs to Jesus. America belongs to Jesus. They belong to him because he purchased them with his precious blood, and now he sits in heaven as their rightful Lord and King, and he intercedes for them there. His blood pleads for us. The scars in his hands and feet and side are still there, and they are receipts of his purchased possession. And he is the sure word of our salvation and the salvation of this whole world. And he gave us this meal to proclaim all of this until he comes. And so this is what we proclaim. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns, where he intercedes, where he prepares a place for you and me. And until then, he invites us here to sit down at his table, to sit because he is seated, to sit with him in heavenly places. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So how do we join the psalmist? How do we bless the Lord with all our soul? How do we bless him like that? The answer that you've heard this morning is that you first of all need to be blessed by him like that. The Lord has to bless you like that. And how can you get into that blessing? How can you to be in that place where God's blessing is entirely poured on you? The place where that rests, where that blessing always rests, is in Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus now ascended at the right hand of the Father, where God the Father continually pours blessings on his Son. That's where you are if you look to him by faith to know that's who you are. That's where you are. And when the blessing falls on you like that, then you have all kinds of blessing to give back and to give out. So now you're going to receive right now the blessing of your God in Jesus. So receive it so that you can bless him and bless those around you. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, descend upon you and remain in your hearts always, and amen. amen.